All right, well, welcome back, everybody. We always say that here at an encounter, our desire is to see people's lives transformed as they have genuine encounters with God. Uh, unfortunately, we couldn't have encounter last week due to parent-teacher conferences, uh, but we really wanted to uh, because last week was a special week. Uh, last week was, does anyone know? Passion week. Passion week. All right, excellent. Uh, a lot of people yesterday didn't know. I said, you guys know today is Maundy Thursday? And someone says, what's Mommy Thursday? Um, but yeah, last week was Passion Week. And Passion Week is the week that starts from Palm Sunday leading up to Jesus' crucifixion on Good Friday and his resurrection on Easter Sunday. It's a special time of the year where we remember Jesus' sacrifice and celebrate his victory. Uh, just like curiosity, how many of you guys this past Sunday on Easter went to church? Okay, awesome, awesome. Yeah, we want you guys to continue to go to church on Sundays. And so tonight's message is kind of a post-Passion Week message. How do we live in light of Passion Week? How do we live in light of what Jesus has done? And so the title of tonight's message, continuing in our New Life series, is A New Passion. Now, before we actually dive into uh, the text, we have to pause and clarify what do we actually mean when we say the word passion. So here are a couple definitions. The dictionary defines passion as a strong and barely controllable emotion, which I think gets us close, but not all the way there. So then if the dictionary doesn't get us close, let's look at the source. The thesaurus says that synonyms for the word passion are the words affection, dedication, and devotion. And that gets us closer, but not quite at the heart of what I think we really mean when we say the word passion or when we say that someone is passionate. Uh, but when we look at the etymology of the word, the root of the word, the word passion comes from the Latin word pati, which means to endure or to suffer. And so our working definition for the word passion tonight is that passion is whatever you're willing to suffer for. Passion is whatever you're willing to suffer for. So, for example, if I say that I'm passionate about soccer, that means that I'm willing to suffer for the sake of soccer. I'm willing to run laps, do drills, wake up early to get better at soccer. If I say that I'm passionate about school, that means I'm willing to stay up late, do my homework, go to Hagon, get tutoring, do whatever it takes to get as good of grades as I can get. And tonight, what we're going to be doing is something a little bit different. We're not looking at one specific passage. We'll be jumping around to different areas of the Bible to see how does the Bible talk about this idea of passion. So let me pray for us before we go any further tonight. Uh, Father God, thank you so much uh, that you are not only uh, a God who gives us your word, uh, but you are the very God of the word. And every time we open your word, God, that you want to meet with us. And so, Father, we ask that as we look into your word this evening, uh, that you would speak uh, clearly into our hearts and that you would align our passions with yours. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so our big idea for tonight is that our passion for God grows as we realize his passion for us. Our passion for God grows as we realize his passion for us. And we'll look at three different things tonight. We'll look at the passion of the world, the passion of God, and a passion for God. 
So first thing we'll look at tonight is the passion of the world. And for this, we'll look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. And here it says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. In his first letter, the Apostle Peter talks about a specific kind of passion, the passions of the flesh. And here the word passion is used clearly in a negative sense. Passion, Peter says that the passions of the flesh wage war against our very soul. So what do these passions of the flesh look like? I think it can manifest in two different ways. The first is an overabundance of passion. An overabundance of passion. Remember, we said that passion is whatever you're willing to suffer for. And from my interactions with you guys uh, throughout the past school year, the vast majority of you are far more passionate about your future uh, than most people your age. I've worked in public high schools for five years, done youth ministry for 10 years, and you guys are way more passionate about your futures. You're willing to suffer way more uh, than peers that you have around the world. Your family is willing to spend large amounts of money for your education, whether that's a tuition here or additional fees for hagon or for tutors. You stay up late nights, you sacrifice sleep, you sacrifice a social life for the sake of your grades. You compete for positions in clubs or you fight to start your own. And you are willing to suffer a great deal as long as you are convinced that that suffering will somehow secure a good life for you. You have an overabundance of passion. And that is because I think the flip side of passion is fear. And the last time I spoke, we talked about how many of us are slaves to various fears, whether that's a fear of failure, a fear of rejection, or fear of mediocrity. And so we try to mitigate those fears by becoming incredibly successful, by striving and by achieving. Uh, but here's what one well-known pastor, one of my favorite speakers, Francis Chan, says. He says that our greatest fear should not be a failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. Yes, when you're young, it seems like the worst thing that can happen to you is to fail, to not be able to reach your goals, to not measure up to the people around you. But what Francis Chan is saying is that the opposite is equally, if not more so miserable, is to look back on your life and to realize that the things that you succeeded in, the things that you accomplished, don't really matter. All the time, energy, and money that you invested were in vain. And you chase after the American dream or the Korean dream or whatever dream that you've been sold only to find out that after all, it doesn't really satisfy. And the suffering that you endured was for nothing. Uh, I am, people keep calling me a Gen Z teacher. Uh, that is not true. I am a like smack dab solid millennial. Uh, and one thing uh, that's interesting about being a part of the first generation to really grow up with social media is that as I grow up, my feed kind of grows up with me. So here's what I mean by that. Uh, when I was your guys' age, and that's how you know I'm old. When I was your guys' age, when I was in high school, uh, the biggest social media platform at that time was Facebook. And Facebook, what you would see on your feed was basically people mostly posting like bathroom selfies. Like that's what Facebook was for. It was for bathroom selfies, right? And then when I was in college, that's when Snapchat blew up for the first time. And then people's stories were about things like what they were eating. It was about food, vacations that they went on with their friends. That's what Snap stories were like. But now that I'm a young adult, everyone has kind of migrated back over to Instagram. Um, I know you guys still use Snapchat, but my age, it's all Instagram. 
And I hate Instagram stories at my age uh, because right now my friend's stories are all about like boring young adult things. It's like about their golf swing. Um, it's about uh, their newborn kids. Okay, which that one, that one's fine. Like it's fine. I think babies all kind of look the same, but fine. I understand you're a proud parent, newborn babies. Uh, but the one thing that I hate seeing the most on my feed is furniture. Okay, and I hate it for a number of reasons. One, because it is boring. Okay, I do not care whether or not you have Aesop soap in your bathroom. <laughs> Number two, because it makes me feel so old. I do not remember subscribing to home renovation Instagram accounts, and yet here I am. It feels like it is now the majority of my Instagram feed. Uh, but three, and this is the real reason why, because this trend is indicative of a kind of consumerism where we measure the value of our lives based on the quality of the things that we own. And the reason why it's so sad for me to see all my friends posting these Instagram stories is because these are friends who I grew up in youth group with, uh, went to the same college church with, who used to be passionate for Jesus. uh, And now all they're concerned about is whether their chairs match their flooring or their curtains match their pillowcases, things like that. And there's a movie, a quote from the movie Fight Club, which uh, you guys can watch when you're 18. Uh, there's a quote from the movie Fight Club, uh, and this is what uh, they say. Chuck Palahniuk says, You buy furniture and you tell yourself, this is the last sofa I will ever need in my life. Buy the sofa, then for a couple of years you're satisfied that no matter what goes wrong, at least you've got your sofa issued handled. Then the right set of dishes. Then the perfect bed, the drapes, the rug. Then you're trapped in your loveliness, and the things you used to own, now they own you. We buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. So many of you guys are so worried about whether or not you're going to be successful in the future, about whether or not you're going to make it. But have you ever thought about what you're going to do with all that money? Like whatever that number is for you, whether you want to make 100,000, 200,000, a million a year, uh, what are you going to buy? What are you going to do? How are you going to spend it? And is that really going to bring you fulfillment? And that is why it says in Matthew 16, 26, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Some of us have an overabundance of passion for the wrong things. But the second way I think that this passion can manifest is not an excess, but rather an absence. Some of us have an absence of passion. I know that the kind of person that I just described does not describe all of us. For some of us, it's the opposite. It's not that we have an abundance of passion, but rather it's an absence of passion that plagues us. That maybe at some point in your life, you used to be passionate about your future, Maybe at some point in your life, you were willing to stay up late, you were willing to study hard, you were willing to suffer for your future, but lately, you can't seem to muster up enough motivation to do so. Like, I am so consistently surprised by the number of you guys with no real long-term ambition or goals. Like, I'll talk to students with the perfect GPA, the perfect resume, and like their future looks so bright, and I'm like, wow, what do you want to do with your life? Like, hmm. I'm like, what? Like you're working this hard, you're sitting up this late, and you're like, I thought you were going to say like med school, law school, something concrete, but you don't even know what you want to do, and you're still working this hard. Uh, and seniors, you guys probably recognize this a lot more intuitively because your suffering has almost come to an end. 
right? Uh, you don't need to be passionate anymore. You've, at this point, committed to your schools, maybe your dream school, maybe not. Uh, but either way, how are you feeling? Is it everything you ever thought it was going to be? Uh, my guess is that there is, as the end of the year grows closer, a growing feeling of emptiness. Relief, yes. Freedom, yes. But emptiness, nonetheless. There's a directionlessness, a lack of urgency, because the thing that has been driving your passion for the past four years has evaporated. And some of you guys have a hard time mustering up any passion because you have looked ahead and you've thought far into the future and you've imagined a successful life. After you've achieved all your goals, you've made your millions, you've seen the most beautiful sights, you've eaten the best food in the world, you have the nicest things, and then you die, and you wonder, is that really all there is to life? And to you, it doesn't seem worth the hassle of school for something that ends up being so meaningless. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I am not preaching like the Goldilocks method, okay? I'm not saying some of you have too much passion, some of you have not enough passion, and like the solution is to go just right. Because either way you spin it, whether it's in abundance or whether it's in absence, you still end up with the same gnawing feeling of emptiness, and you still end up wondering, is there not something more worthwhile to be passionate about? Is there not something more worthy of my suffering? The first thing we see is that the passions of the flesh threaten our very soul. So then what are proper passions? The next thing we're going to look at is the passion of God. We're going to look to God himself to see what is God actually passionate about. And for this, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. It says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, although the word passion is not used in this verse, as the author of Hebrews describes what Jesus suffered on the cross, it becomes incredibly clear what Jesus is passionate about. The passion of God is a passion for his people. How do we see this? Because of what he suffered. It says he endured the cross. I think a lot of times, especially if you've been at Yes for a while, especially if you grew up in a Christian home, the idea of Jesus on a cross, again, it kind of becomes numb to us. But Jesus really lived. He really breathed. He really walked on this earth. He had flesh and blood and skin and bones. And he endured the physical pain of being hung on a cross with nails being driven through his wrists and through his ankles and a crown of thorns being placed on his head. That is what we remembered last Friday during Good Friday, is that he was willing to endure the physical pain of the cross. Not only was it the physical pain, but also that he despised the shame It was not only physically painful, but utterly shameful for the Son of God to be hung on a cross. Because He is the creator of all things, but the creator was crucified by creation. And this was uh, the ultimate condescension from heaven to earth, where He endured the ultimate shame, naked, bloodied, hanging on a cross. But why? Why did he endure all this? It says, for the joy that was set before him. He was passionate. He was willing to endure suffering for the joy that was set before him. 
And what was the joy? What was it that Jesus looked forward to on the other side of the cross? It was you. It was me. It was his church. Jesus endured the suffering and the shame of the cross because he knew that the payoff was that he was going to be able to have us for all eternity. Like, did you know that? That when Jesus looked at the cross, his motivation was joy? That it made him glad to save you? I think sometimes we have this idea of Jesus on the cross, like he reluctantly went there. Like he didn't really want to go, uh, but God the Father forced him to go and die on a cross. No, it says that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Because the idea of saving you actually made him happy. It brought him joy to imagine spending eternity with you in heaven. And the part about that that is so hard to grasp is the reality that a holy God would join himself to weak, stubborn, and sinful people like us. Anne Voskamp, a Christian author, wrote a piece uh, last week uh, titled, The Greatest Passion Your Humanity Has Ever Known. And she says, At the end of the day, it's not hate that drove us to crucify God. What caused the crucifixion of God is all of our other flimsy loves, all our cheaper passions, all our love affairs with all the betraying things of this world, that all stirred the passion of God to lay down his beating heart on the altar of that wood to woo and win us back to him. We are passionate for the fleeting things of this world, for money, for beauty, and for success. But God is passionate for our souls And all of our selfish passions combined could not suppress the sacrificial passion of God. And so what is the passion of God? It is his people. You are the passion of God. You are what the Son of God was willing to suffer for. And so if God is passionately in love with us, how then should we respond? With a passionate love for God. Last thing we'll look at tonight is a passion for God. And for this, we're going to turn all the way to the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation. In chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, it says, Then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing." The first thing we see, what does it look like to be passionate for God? Is that you are passionate for His presence. It's a passion for His presence. The first thing we see is that all these people, as John is receiving this revelation from God, and we get a glimpse as to what heaven is like, we see that the saints and the elders and the angels are all wrapped around the throne of God, captivated by His presence, fixated on His beauty, and enamored with His glory. Like they're just in the center of heaven, gazing at Jesus day and night. And people ask me what heaven will be like, and they'll ask, is all we're going to do in heaven sing praise songs? Like when I get bored, because we, like, we sang three opening songs before the sermon today, and I like my mind started drifting. Um, and no, I don't think that all that we'll do in heaven is worship. The Bible also talks about us eating and drinking and actually working. Uh, but in heaven... You and I will never tire of worshiping God. Why? One, 
because your sin nature will be plucked out of you and you will not have an appetite for the other things of this world. Like the reason why you and I can't worship 24-7 is because you still have a sin nature that wants other things that distract you from it. And if that's not getting its craving, then worship diminishes in your hearts. And we are all addicts, but when Jesus comes back is when we will be set free from those various addictions. So one, we will not get tired of worship because our sin nature will be removed. And second, because we will with unveiled face see the immeasurable beauty and glory of God. Because when you realize how beautiful something is or how glorious something is, you don't tire of it. You consume that thing as much as you can. How do I know? Because of black pink. This is what I mean, all right? So this is the cycle, right? Whenever a K-pop group drops a new song, first there's the music video, okay? You watch the music video, you watch it a couple times through, you listen to the song, you listen to the lyrics, you watch the choreography, but then a couple days later, there's the making of the music video. You're like, oh, how did they make it? Who else went out there to support Chisu while she was recording? And then after the making of the music video, there's Chisu's reaction to the music video. How did she like the music video? But then you're, like, you're watching the music video like, oh, I couldn't really see the choreography too clearly. So that's when they released the performance version of the music video, right? And now you can see the choreography from start to finish. But that's still not enough. Now you want to hear the live version. What does the live version sound like? And so you see Inkigayo or Music Bank and you see them perform it live and you're like, oh, her mic was on, right? All of these different versions of the same thing over and over again. And do you get tired of it? No, it has millions of views because when you believe that something is beautiful, when you believe that something is glorious, you behold it, you gaze at it, you consume it over and over again. And the reason why we are not as passionate for the presence of God as we are for K-pop or for some boy or some girl whose attention we want is because we do not accurately recognize the beauty and worth of God. And so the people of God are one passionate for his presence but not only that, they are also passionate for his praise. In verse 12, they say, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Day and night and night and day, the saints, elders, angels, they are singing a song of praise to God. And what are they singing? They're saying that the Lamb is worthy to receive all these things, power, wealth, wisdom, seven different things. And seven is the number of completion in uh Jewish thought. And so what they're essentially saying is that, Jesus, you're worthy of everything. Whatever good, glorious, beautiful thing that there is on this earth, you deserve it all. And the people of God become passionate about God's praise because we recognize what God has done for us. And so now we say in return, God, you deserve everything. You gave it all for me. And so now you deserve it all. You know, a lot of times I'll hear students say like, oh, I like the sermons when they're relevant to the things that high school students go through. Uh, like when the talks are about something like anxiety or burnout. Um, but man, those sermons only feel relevant to you guys because you believe that those are your biggest problem. And so you come to encounter wondering, God, what can you do for me tonight? Not realizing that he has already solved your biggest problem on the cross. That the cross is the most relevant thing that could possibly happen. And when you actually begin to realize that, and when that truth begins to sink down into your heart, you will stop asking, God, what can you do for my life? And instead, you will start asking, God, what do you want to do with my life? What can I do for you? 
because I want to spend my life to bring you praise and honor and blessing and glory. Because this is the beautiful irony of the Christian life, is that when you surrender those otherworldly passions, like when you actually have the guts to say, God, it's okay if I don't get into the college I want. It's okay if I don't become successful. I just want to worship you. What you'll find is that you will find fulfillment in life like you never could have imagined. And that is why Jesus says, whoever tries to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. And why does it work that way? Because you were made to worship God. Because God has entrusted you with specific gifts for building his kingdom. But instead, if you try to use those very gifts to pursue your own passions, you will quickly find that your life gets out of order. Uh, This is an image maybe you've seen before that I think is helpful. And it talks about uh, some of the various ways to think about uh, life, right? So if it's something that you're paid for doing and something that you're great at, you might not like doing it, but you're just just like an accounting whiz. That's a profession, right? If it's something that uh, you love doing and something the world needs, like you want to volunteer in homeless shelters or you want to help provide clean water uh, in a developing country, that's a mission, If it's something you love doing, you're great at it, maybe it's soccer, but like you're not good enough to get paid for it, that's just a passion. But if you love it, the world needs it, you're paid for it, and you're great at it, that's when you find the purpose that God has made you for. That's when you find your God-given passion. Uh, And you don't need to be in a rush to find it. Uh, You will discover it as you day by day follow God and obey Him. He will reveal to you the gifts that he's given you. Like the things that you guys think are your gifts right now, like they're probably second, third, fourth in the ranking of the actual gifts that God has given you. Uh, But just as you actually grow, as you serve, as you interact with people, you will discover the gifts he has given to you. And he will show you the things that he's given you a heart for. And as you follow him, he will use you in ways that you could not have imagined. Uh, So this is my first year at YIS. uh, And this is... Uh, the resume I submitted when I applied for YIS, uh, Mr. Nelson was one of the people who hired me. Now, uh, so on my resume, you'll see I said that my career objective is to serve students by equipping them with critical thinking skills and a biblical worldview. What are my qualifications? I studied English education at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. I'm halfway through my Master of Divinity. I'm in seminary. That's where you go to learn to become a pastor. So I'm halfway through that. I have five years of teaching experience at a public high school. Um, Yes, just requires two. And then on page two of my resume, I have uh, years of ministry experience doing youth ministry, college ministry, children's ministry, uh, years uh, going internationally, uh, going on various mission trips overseas, uh, and things like that. Um, Now, so when I submitted my resume, uh, and uh, Mr. Nelson saw it, Mr. Pash saw it, uh, Dr. Borden saw it, In a lot of ways, it felt like my resume was tailor-made for this position Um, because of the international experience I have, because of the Bible experience I have, because of the teaching experience I have, the education I have, and the fact that I'm Korean-American and like most likely won't experience too much culture shock when I move over here. Like Those are all things uh, that made me feel uniquely qualified when I applied for this job. But the thing is, I didn't build my resume 10 years ago, right? Like right now you guys have this thought, like I need to figure out what I want to do in life and take steps A, B, C, and D so that I can get there in time and be as successful as I can, as young as I can, retire as fast as I can. Um, But it's not like I started building my resume 10 years ago knowing like one day I will work at Yongsang International School of Seoul, 
right? Like I had no idea that schools like this even existed until last year. But for the past 10 years, day by day, I just did what I thought God was calling me to do every single day. And he showed me my gifts and he showed me my callings. And now I believe that he's called me to be here and to continue to share his word with people. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that developing a passion for God means that you have to be a teacher at YIS, okay? Some of you are like, that is not worth it. I'll stick with the passions of the world, okay? Because I know that you guys probably don't look at us YIS teachers and think, man, that's what I want to be in 10 years, right? Um, I remember my, one of my classes, they did this project. They did a social experiment where they, uh, they put two wallets out, one that looked like a rich person's wallet and one that looked like a poor person's wallet. But they're like 14, so they don't actually have wallets and don't know what they go in, goes into wallets. So they're like, oh, Mr. Child, what do you have in your wallet? I'm like, I have my ID, I have my credit card, maybe like one of those like sticker coupons where it's like if you eat chicken from here four times, the fifth one's free. And they're like, oh yeah, poor people love that stuff. And I was like, oh, I didn't know, I didn't know I was the poor person. <laughs> um, but so yeah, I recognize, I get it. I know that you guys probably don't look at our lives and think that's why I want to be. That's like the picture of success that I have. Uh, but sometimes, you know, I think about like what I would do if I won the lottery, right? Like let's say I just won a billion dollars and I never needed to work again a day in my life, I think I would still be right here. I would still want to spend my days uh, telling people about my Savior because He gave His life for me, and so now I want to give my life for Him. And every morning I wake up and I look forward to coming here. Uh, that is not true of every job I've ever had. Uh, but because I know that this is the place that God has called me to be, because I'm exercising the gifts he has given me according to the way that he wants me to, uh, there is such a fulfillment and a joy. Uh, like those pictures of the furniture that I showed you guys, that's not like a random Google. Like that is an actual person I know in real life. Um, and they're like really successful. Like their, uh, her and her husband's combined income is very high. They have over a million dollar house in Irvine, California. And we were talking about our lives. Uh, she's exactly three days younger than I am. Um, and we're talking about our lives and we're talking about our futures and they spent a lot of money investing to their 401k and their Roth IRA and into their various savings accounts. Um, and we talked about like health and like what happens if you die suddenly and she goes, man, if I die before I get to use my retirement money, I'm going to be so pissed. Um, which I get, you know, I get you're putting a lot away there. Um, but that's it. That's what you're passionate about. You're working that hard just so you don't have to work anymore? Just so you can retire and have Aesop soap and matching curtains and tables and chairs and whatever? That's not the life I want to live. I want to live a life that I know my Creator has made me to live. I want to live a life that I know is making an eternal impact. I want to live my life thanking and praising and worshiping and loving the God who loved me. Um, that is because our passion for God grows as we realize his passion for us. If, uh, as I'm saying these things, you think, uh, you know, you might be sitting there thinking, Mr. Chad, that sounds uh, really nice for you, um, but that's not for me. Uh, I need to get into a top-tier school. Uh, I need to make it. I've sacrificed too much. I've invested too much. Uh, I can't turn back now. Uh, 
you don't need to try to stir up passion for God on your own. You don't need to try to make yourself love God more because you can't. There's nothing in your flesh that can naturally do that because if you could, then Jesus wouldn't have needed to die. But if you want to grow in your passion for God and you want to find freedom and fulfillment in life, uh, like nothing this world can offer, then it's simple. All you have to do is focus on God's passion for you. You focus on His passionate love for you. You focus on His desire for you. You focus on what He has sacrificed for you. And whatever He might call you to have to sacrifice for Him in return will seem small. It will seem like nothing because you realize what He endured for you.